What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, and my goodness, the doings that have been going on in this work of classic literature. The doings, the ups, the downs, the stories within stories, the parables, the tales of intrigue and thrills that we received last time. My goodness, what an astounding story that we just recounted. The story of Safi, the poor girl born into slavery in Turkey to a Christian mother, a Mohammedan father who was uh, arrested in France for a plot to depose, uh, uh, chumped up charges. He was thrown in jail. A generous uh, dude in the French whatever, gendarme, helped to free him. The father said, what can I do? The, the guy, Felix, we know was like, hey, what about your daughter? She's cute. And he's like, sure, take my daughter. And I'm just like going, what does this have to do with the big buddy, the creature. It's a bizarre story. And it's the big buddy who's overhearing the entire thing out there in his little shed while eavesdropping on these folks who are uh, on Safi, the woman who's recounting this story. That was the end of chapter six, volume two. And I'm, look, my adrenaline's, my, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all a flutter just thinking about it, just thinking about the topsy-turvy tale that we have seen here. And how much more exciting that stupid story is than the story we've been following for over 100 pages to this point. The story of this creation of Dr. Frankenstein. So let's get on it. Let's continue. Chapter 7. Let's see where we are. Chapter 7 begins. Such was the history of my beloved cottagers. And again, now we're talking, this is the big buddy talking. Eight feet tall and rising. It impressed me deeply. I learned from the views of social life, which it developed to admire their virtues and to deprecate the vices of mankind. We had a discussion at the dinner table tonight 
a discussion about literature. And I have to tell you, like, um, the family and I do not normally discuss literature around the dinner table. This is not something we normally do. I was thrilled to do it because the subject of this podcast came up and they were saying, what are you going to do next season? And I was saying, oh, I'm probably going to do some American novel. And if you have any ideas about what novel I should do, by all means, I'd like to hear them. But they were saying, what do you want to do? And what do you think of Frankenstein? And I said, it's not that good. It kind of sucks. And you're not supposed to say that Frankenstein sucks, you know, but it does. It's not the best book, but I'm reading it and I'm going to get through it. And it is not uh, the most fascinating novel I've ever read. But we got into the conversation about, oh, well, what, what, what is, do you think, Frankenstein about? And my wife is of the opinion that it's kind of a feminist story, that woman is the creature in this story. And I was like, I don't think so. She's like, I, I took a class in college about it. I was like, well, I don't think so. So when we talk about the vices of mankind, certainly... We are talking, I think at least in part, about that dreaded word, the patriarchy. Oh, God, we hate the patriarchy, don't we? I mean, I don't. I benefit from it. God bless the patriarchy. Back to the book. As yet, I looked upon crime as a distant evil. Benevolence and generosity were ever present before me inciting within me a desire to become an actor in the busy scene where so many admirable qualities were called forth and displayed. But in giving an account of the progress of my intellect, I must not omit a circumstance which occurred in the beginning of the month of August of the same year. Oh my God, are we going to hear another goddamn story from the big buddy? Can't we just proceed in the direction of the story? There's all these detours. Like, dude, just what, like, kill somebody. That's what you're there to do. You're there to wreak havoc on the world. I don't want to hear about all these other things. I just want to know when you're going to kill somebody. That's my main point of interest in this book. Death, destruction, maim, bloodshedding, maiming, bloodshedding, maybe even the desecration of corpses. I don't care. The more grotesque, the better, the kinkier, the better. I just want there to be mayhem. One night, during my accustomed visit to the neighboring wood, where I collected my own food and brought home firing for my protectors, because remember, he brings home firewood for them, I found on the ground a leathern portmanteau containing several articles of dress and some books. Well, a portmanteau. I have to tell you, I don't know what that is. So I have to crank up the research machine, and let me just see if I can... Start it up. Let me just hit the crank here. Ah, there it is. It is working, fortunately. Uh, I didn't know if there was any gasoline in it, but there it is. Portmanteau definition. Uh, what does the research machine say? A large trunk or suitcase, typically made of stiff leather and operating in two equal parts. Um, portmanteau. So I know portmanteau is, you know, when you, when you put words together, you know, like if you were going to get a, uh, you know, combined jelly and banana, you'd have banana or belly. That's how I think of a portmanteau, not as a suitcase. I eagerly seized the prize and returned with it to my hovel. Fortunately, the books were written in the language, the elements of which I had acquired at the cottage. They consisted of Paradise Lost, 
a volume of Plutarch's lives and the sorrows of Werther. And then we have a footnote here. Chapter 7, footnote. Here it is. Plutarch's lives and the sorrows of Werther, Milton's Paradise Lost, Plutarch's Parallel Lives, circa AD 100, and Johann von Goethe's Sorrows of Young Werther are considered by Yale scholar Peter Brooks to constitute a possible, possible romantic cyclopedia universalis, godlike science slash unhallowed arts. Uh, what? Language, nature, and monstrosity in Levine in Knopfelmacher. The Endurance of Frankenstein, see further reading. Okay, so uh, this is the most intense footnote we've ever had so far in the book. But what they're saying is these three books give you a sense of enhanced, the thematic sense of this book. The godlike science unhallowed arts, right? Remember Victor Frankenstein. This was the shit that he was studying when he first went to Ingolstadt. He wanted to learn Basically, how to play God, how to turn, uh, you know, how to make something out of nothing, how to make life, how to breathe life into the inanimate, and so these books continue that theme. They're all like, hey, you know, this this is shit about God. This is shit about people playing God, and so that's you know, fine, good, great, great. I like that it's uh, I like I you know I like that it's well thought out, <laughs> you know. I like, you know, it's stupid to say, uh, but, you know, she picked these books because they enhance and deepen the theme. And, you know, as a writer myself, like, I often think to myself, like, gee, I'm not that smart. Like, I'm not good enough to do, to like write a book, like a full, I mean, I know I've written books, but like a novel, you know what I mean? Like a full thing where you've thought about shit. <laughs> So, you know, he's got these books. The possession of these treasures gave me extreme delight. I now continually studied and exercised my mind upon these histories whilst my friends were employed in their ordinary occupations. I can hardly describe to you the effects of these books. They produced in me an infinity of new images and feelings that sometimes raised me to ecstasy, but more frequently sunk me into the lowest dejection. In the sorrows of Werther, besides the interest of its simple and affecting story, so many opinions are canvassed, and so many lights thrown upon what had hitherto been to me obscure subjects that I found in it a never-ending source of speculation and astonishment. The gentle and domestic manners it described, combined with lofty sentiments and feelings which had for their object something out of self, accorded well with my experience among my protectors, and with the wants which were forever alive in my own bosom. But I thought Werther himself a more divine being than I had ever beheld or imagined. His character contained no pretension, but it sunk deep. The disquisitions upon death and suicide were calculated to fill me with wonder. 
I did not pretend to enter into the merits of the case, yet I inclined towards the opinions of the hero whose extinction I wept. Spoiler, please. Spoiler, please, big buddy. Some of us were planning on reading The Sorrows of Werther next, and now you're telling us he went extinct? Well, then what's the fucking point? Why am I gonna p- why am I gonna pick up a dime store edition of the Sorrows of Werther now? I'm not. He wept without precisely understanding it. Well, there is much to understand here. Um, particularly the uh, I'm just called to mind here the disquisitions upon death and suicide, calculated to fill the big buddy with wonder. We know. He is interested in death. We don't, e- we don't yet know that he had even been aware of the option of suicide. And yet, in I think it was two episodes previous, we did a whole little spiel about to be or not to be, I think therefore I am, and what it means to be alive. To be alive means, in a sense, to ponder one's death. I mean, to be conscious. I mean, I don't mean that. That's wrong. That's wrong and dumb. That was wrong and dumb. As a human, to be conscious, to know oneself in the world, to be aware of one's life, one has to be aware of one's death, I think, as a a human. Maybe? Maybe not. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. All right, look, I'm tying myself up in knots here, and not the good knots, not the Don knots, the linguistic knots, the philosophical knots, um, you know, my understanding of all things is at best superficial, so I'm going to take a quick little break, gird myself with some tea, and return back in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm back. Big Buddy, reading books. 
as we are reading books. So, you know, doing a little book report, doing a little synopsis of other books, not getting on with his own story, continuing. As I read, however, I applied much personally to my own feelings and condition. I found myself similar, yet at the same time strangely unlike to the beings concerning whom I read and to whose conversation I was a listener. I sympathized with and partly understood them, but I was unformed in mind. I was dependent on none and related to none. And this is a quote. He's quoting, the path of my departure was free. Interesting. Okay, so that's that's another footnote. Let's go. Let's get to it. Uh, the chapter uh, seven. So that's from Shelley's mutability. <laughs> so she's <laughs> she's quoting her husband. Okay, fine. And incidentally, not the first time she's done that. It's cheesy. It's cheesy that she's like, yeah, let me give my husband a shout out. You know, Mad Ups, Percy, Bissy, Shelley. <sighs> you do, you know, it's just corny. Don't do that. Don't do that in your book. Don't quote your spouse multiple times, and particularly because the big buddy wouldn't be aware of Shelley. You know, but but the big buddy is literally quoting. It's a, it's a quotation. The path of my departure was free. Not only do we know he has not read Shelley in. In, in, in this story, Shelley has not yet even been born. So that's from Shelley's Mutability. The path of its departure still is free. What does that mean? The path of its departure, the path of my departure was free, and there was none to lament, not my annihilation. So uh, there's nothing preventing, I guess, his departure. The path there, you know, you, it, the, the runway is clear. Green lights all the way. If you want to throw yourself off a cliff into a ravine, off Mont Blanc into, you know, whatever rivers there are in Switzerland, and there's probably some, go ahead, dude. Nobody's going to mourn you. That's what he's saying. My person was hideous and my stature gigantic. What did this mean? Who was I? What was I? Whence did I come? What was my destination? These questions continually recurred, but I was unable to solve them. Yeah, we'll join the club. Okay? That's what we do. And I'm glad to see you're doing it. We're all asking these questions, all of us. The volume of Plutarch's lives, which I possessed, contained the histories of the first founders of the ancient republics. This book had a far different effect on me from the sorrows of Werther. I learned from Werther's imaginations despondency and gloom. But Plutarch taught me high thoughts. He elevated me above the wretched sphere of my own reflections to admire and love the heroes of past ages. Many things I read surpassed my understanding and experience. I had a very confused knowledge of kingdoms, wide extensive country, mighty rivers, and boundless seas but I was perfectly unacquainted with towns and large assemblages of men. The cottage of my protectors had been the only school in which I had studied human nature, but this book 
developed new and mightier scenes of action. I read of men concerned in public affairs, governing or massacring their species. I felt the greatest ardor for virtue rise within me and abhorrence for vice, as far as I understood the signification, signification of those terms, relative as they were, interesting, as I applied them to pleasure and pain alone. Hmm. I just have to think about that for a second. The abhorrence of vice, which he applies to pleasure and pain alone. Virtue and vice as related to pleasure and pain alone. Can we say that vice is always for the sake of pleasure and virtue? Huh. Wait, if you equate virtue and vice with pleasure and pain, I don't think that holds up. Certainly, virtue creates pleasure. Virtue creates pain. It creates both at times, right? They're not necessarily correlated with each other. What is virtuous is not necessarily pleasurable, nor is it necessarily painful. Vice is almost always in the service of pleasure, however, but even when committing to vice, one is always aware of the possibility of pain, either pain that you're creating or pain that you are causing yourself. So I'm not sure. I mean, are all, all things ultimately are conditioned upon pleasure and pain, are they not? Oh God, now I'm getting into a whole other thing that I hadn't really thought about before. So from an evolutionary point of view, are all things conditioned on pleasure and pain? It feels like maybe they are. But virtue and vice arise out of pleasure and pain, right? Virtue arises out of, um, I mean, both concepts arise out of social order. They have to, because we wouldn't label any activity as virtuous or vice-ish, vicious, I don't know, without social order because we wouldn't have any kind of hierarchy to balance those things against each other. So pleasure and pain, we have. Pleasure and pain, I think, are necessary components of natural selection and evolution. Not evolution, but natural selection. And virtue and vice arise out of those, right? I, I, I guess. I, you know, why, why am I getting sidetracked on this? Induced by these feelings, I was, of course, led to admirable, peaceable lawgivers, Numa, Solon, S-O-L-L-O-M, and Lycurgus, in preference to Romulus and Theseus, of course. I mean, when we, talk, when we think about, like, Theseus, and then we hold them up against Ly Lycur Lycurgus, we're like, yeah, Lycurgus every day of the week. Fucking Theseus can suck it. More like Theseus suck it. The patriarchal lives of my protectors caused these impressions to take a firm hold on my mind. Perhaps if my first introduction to humanity had been made by a young soldier burning for glory and slaughter, I should have been imbued with different sensations. And now we're going to get into Paradise Lost. I mean, I... Was this really a necessary detour, big buddy, for us to hear about every book that you read and how your intellect came to be and how you formed these thoughts? And, you know, like, I feel like we're retreading a lot of the same ground here. 
you found this portmanteau. Honestly, I feel like we could have left that portmanteau in the woods. Yes, we would have been like, well, then how do you know this? And how do you know why? But, 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 but we were wondering that anyway. You know, he could have just said, I read some books. They had some books in the cottage. I read them when they were out. They were great. But Paradise Lost excited different and far deeper emotions. I read it as I had read the other volumes, which had fallen into my hands, as a true history. Okay. It moved every feeling of wonder and awe that the picture of an omnipotent God warring with his creatures was capable of exciting. I often referred to several situations as their similarity struck me to my own. Like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence, but his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God a perfect creature, happy and prosperous, guarded by the especial care of his creator. He was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature. But I was wretched, helpless, and alone. Many times I considered Satan as the fitter emblem of my condition, for often, like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. Another circumstance strengthened and confirmed these feelings. Soon after my arrival in the hovel, I discovered some papers in the pocket of the dress which I had taken from your laboratory. At first, I had neglected them, but now that I was able to decipher the characters in which they were written, I began to study them with diligence. It was your journal of the four months that preceded my creation. You minutely described in these papers every step you took in the progress of your work. This history was mingled with accounts of domestic occurrences. You doubtless recollect these papers. Here they are. Everything is related in them which bears reference to my accursed origin, the whole detail of that series of disgusting circumstances which produced it is set in view. The minutest description of my odious and loathsome person is given in language which painted your own horrors and rendered mine indelible. I sickened as I read. Hateful day when I received life, I exclaimed in agony. Accursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? God in pity made man beautiful and alluring after his own image, but my form is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even from the very resemblance. Satan had his companions, fellow devils, to admire and encourage him, but I am solitary and abhorred. I wasn't into the sorrows of Fertner, Fertner, Werner, whatever. I wasn't into Plutarch's lives. I'm very into Paradise Lost as related to us by the big buddy. Very into it. And these big ideas that we know are, form the spine of the book, unlike what my wife's college class told her, which I agree is some component of this book. 
totally agree with that. But the larger theme of creation and the responsibility that one has to one's creation and the responsibility one has to one's creator, that theme is on full display right here. And those questions, those immutable questions, are a boining. And when I say boining, I mean burning, not boning. They're not boning, they're boining, by which I mean burning. Um, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? And he can look at, at God, a.k.a. Dr. Frankenstein, and say, who are you to me? Who are you? Are you the benevolent Lord or are you Satan? Who are you to me? Am I a devil creature? Myself. He's referred to himself as a blot on this earth. I mean, he's, he's really beaten himself up a few times, hasn't he? And now he's face to face with his creator and showing the creator his own handiwork, literally in both his presence, his physical presence, and in the journal that he kept, the notes on how he was created. Imagine if you could stand at the gates of heaven and say, oh, by the way, God, you dropped this. Here's your notebook on how you created man. What would, what would be in those margins? What would the notes be? It's interesting. I've never heard this before, uh, this idea. Even God in pity made man beautiful and alluring after his own image. That the reason we are in the form of God is out of pity. Why pity? Because perhaps we are <sighs> cursed, maybe? with this special consciousness, and God knew what a burden it would be. And so, out of pity, God said, well, you know, I'm going to make you gorgeous. You know, you're going to look just like me. I'm going to make you very good looking. You know, you're going to look in a mirror and you're going to go, oh, I'm godlike. Like, I bear the respects of God, and therefore, this consciousness should be in service to my Lord. But this creator made a mockery out of that pity, made the big buddy, you know, just a freak show. And the big buddy knows it. So you go, well, why? Why would that happen? Unless there was evil afoot. Evil, I say. And who is the evil here? Is it the creator? Is it the created? Is the created necessarily evil because of where it comes from? Does evil always beget evil, right? Does vice always create vice? Hard to say. Big stuff going on, guys. Big stuff burbling just below the surface here. Not even below the surface. It's on the surface. Big stuff burbling on the surface. I mean, important questions. Look, I complain about it all the time, but these last two episodes I've enjoyed. These last two readings. First, the story of Safi, the wild Turk. And now, you know, we're back to the uh, philosophical stuff. And I'm into it. Everybody said, stick with it. It'll get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. All right. Well, it's getting better for me. But still, still, I want mayhem. Still, I want bloodletting. Still, I want screams in the night. I want poor William smothered, his neck broken, his necklace stolen. I want it all. Give it to me, Mary Shelley. Give me the mayhem. Give me the cruelty. Enough brooding. God, so much shoegazing in this book. 
And I love it because, I, you know, look, at heart, I'm a shoegazing emo kid. At heart, I'm that 17-year-old that Mary Shelley is, you know, who, who, who couldn't get past high school philosophy. Not that there is philosophy in high school, but, you know, these big questions, I think people first confront in high school, I haven't been able to get past them. But I love it. I love thinking about this stuff. Thank you, Mary Shelley. You're doing good work. We appreciate you, don't we, everybody? Can we give Mary Shelley a little round of applause for the good work she's doing? You know, I beat her up all the time, but when I'm into it, I got to boost her up. Beat them and boost them. That's what I say. Beat them and boost them. Um, I don't mean literally because I do not. I'm all about respect for women. Everybody knows that. Like my thing is picking, eating, and rating snacks. But that's not what I'm about. What I'm about is respect for women, along with my friend Tom Cavanaugh. That is, of course, a reference to Mike and Tom Eat Snacks. Those of you who know this podcast probably know that one. If you don't, check it out. Why am I plugging my own podcast? Who am I, Mary Shelley, quoting her husband? Come on. It's absurd. Let's end now on a high note. And we'll be back next time on another philosophizing episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedrin. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public in addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced too, I might add.